Well, we've been uh, in this series for a little bit. We're wrapping it up tonight. And so if you haven't been with us, uh, this series has been called Life. And we've been looking at some principles, some habits, some uh, some rhythms that we see lived out in the life of Jesus. And uh, I hope tonight, much like Lyle was praying, that uh, we would be found by this principle. We kind of started this series with this principle, this habit, this rhythm of prayer that we see in the life of Jesus. I want to come back to that, kind of end our series with this, looking at a a slice and a flavor of it that I I think is, if we're honest, uh, easy for us to miss Easy for us to to think sometimes prayer doesn't work. Sometimes we feel like prayer just kind of hits the ceiling and bounces back. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, um, but I know I have at times. And uh, and I think that's a reality for a lot of people who face. So in this series, we've been saying these rhythms that we see in the life of Jesus isn't just the things he taught, but it's the way he lived. Remember looking back at Matthew chapter 11 when Jesus said, you know, you come to me, you take on my yoke and you learn from me. It wasn't just this idea of learning about his teachings, and that's really important and we need to. And we need to understand the theology of what he's going, but we need to actually just watch and look how he lived. And we looked at several different of these uh, habits, these rhythms in life. And if you've missed any of that, you can actually, I don't know if you knew, maybe if you're you're new here, uh, we actually podcast everything that we have, video or audio, uh, online. You can go to elementcitychurch.org and you can find all the messages there. So you can go back if you want at some point. Uh, But tonight I want to look at this idea, this, this whole series, we've been saying this idea that spiritual transformation is not a matter of trying harder. It's not about me just trying to put more effort into it, to try to get better, to try to get on the same page with God. It's about me training better. It's about me trying to become, uh, get some of these rhythms, these habits that we see in the life of Jesus more into my life, more into the rhythm of how I live. And as I do that, I not only grow in my relationship and the intimacy I can have with God and the connection I can have with him, but also life goes better. Does that mean you're never going to have a hiccup? Does it mean there's never going to be a speed bump? No. It means that life is real and we deal with real life. And as we go through that, though, we handle it maybe a little bit different, a little bit better in this principle of, okay, I got to train better. And so uh, with that, I want you to think back to a commercial for a, a liquid that we drink. Uh, it's a liquid that at the very end of this commercial, it was sponsored by the Dairy Farmers of America, hint. Um, and at the end of this commercial, we go to black screen and it would ask a simple question, two words and a question mark after it, it would say, got milk, right? So you've seen this commercial. Okay. So the reality is that's not a question. Okay, it is, but it's not. What they were really saying by that question is they were making a statement, really. They were saying, they just given you in the whole commercial all the benefits and the calcium, just everything, protein that goes with milk and why you should drink it. And so they ask you the question, got milk? But in reality, what they were trying to say is go get milk, right? That's what they're trying to teach you. And I, and I think if you look at the rhythm and the life of Jesus, I think sometimes you, you could replace the got milk with got prayer. And Jesus would maybe ask that question, but he's not really asking the question. He's really making a statement. He's making a statement in such a way that we might understand to say, okay, prayer is not just something that I tack on at the end of a meal or tack on at the end of a trouble and a trial that I'm going through. Uh, see, often when we approach prayer, we approach prayer sometimes with the idea that it's the last resort. I've tried everything else, so now I will pray. 
But for Jesus, prayer was never a last resort. It was always a first priority. And so much so that these Jewish followers that understood prayer. See, sometimes we think, okay, well, maybe they just don't understand prayer. No, no, no. They understood prayer. They grew up with prayer, okay? More prayer than you grew up with. They grew up around prayer. They understood prayer. They had practiced prayer. But something about the way Jesus prayed led these guys, these early disciples, these early followers of his, to come up to him one day and say, would you teach us how to pray? Because I've grown up and I've been around prayer and I've done prayer and I've read about prayer and I I know prayer. But when I watch you pray, I feel like I know nothing. And so they would come up to Jesus and they said to him, Rabbi, would you teach us how to pray? Would you teach us prayer? And Jesus didn't sit down and give a lecture. He gave what you may know as the Lord's Prayer. He just kind of prayed and said, this is kind of how you do it. And he modeled prayer. Why? Because prayer was never a last resort for Jesus. It was always a first priority. And I think Jesus understood that rhythm better than anybody. And he wanted his early followers, and I think he wanted his followers today, you and me, to understand that prayer is, is foundational to our faith. Now, I know a lot of people, and I've asked a lot of people, hey, do you pray enough? <laughs> Guess what the answer is? No, that's, I don't know what the right answer is. This is not about quantity. This is not about, there's no uh, rhythm. You're not going to find something in the Bible that says, okay, you've got to pray 32 minutes a day, and if you don't do that, then, you know, you're not going to find that. I, I know so many people who, when you ask them about prayer, how's your prayer life, they go, well, man, I don't pray enough. I don't pray enough. And it's always like this guilt thing over them. But I wonder if prayer, in a lot of ways, if Jesus made it his first priority, I think sometimes we feel that pressure, that guilt, because we've almost let it slide to being this last resort. Instead of letting prayer be this first priority, that I'm just in constant conversation. I'm in constant lookout. I'm in constant awareness of. I'm in constant connection, seeking out. God's best in my life. Asking him what he thinks. Does that mean you have to take God shopping with you? Like, do you like these socks or these socks? I don't know. Uh, Don't be weird. Um, But maybe God cares about socks. You can certainly ask him. But prayer is something that you want to have to be a part of the rhythm of how we live. And so tonight I want to look at the story that Jesus tells about why we should pray and that we should always pray and never lose hope. One of my favorite theologians, Henry Nouwen, has this quote. He says this, Prayer is the central piece of the Christian life, the only necessary thing. See, prayer was such a priority for Jesus that it captured the attention of his early followers. And they sought to know, okay, how do we pray like you? How do we connect like you? Because Jesus understood, I think, that in our cultural context, much like the first century as it is today, that we live in a culture, we live in a world where it's really easy in the brokenness of of the scenarios that we live surrounded by um, to want to give up, to want to quit, to want to lose hope, to want to, to, to just say, okay, that's enough, I've tried everything. And I don't know if you've ever been there where you've just kind of the hope meter that you have in life is running really low. And I'm assuming, uh, because you're alive, that you've had moments like that. 
that your hope meter kind of runs pretty low. And in those moments, it's really easy to say, prayer's not working. I don't know what to do. I've tried everything. And sometimes the simplest prayer to pray is help. Sometimes that's the simplest prayer. Now, sometimes that doesn't get answered right away. And that's where the tension becomes. That's where the struggle is. Because we feel like, okay, we just... Because when my child comes up to me and says, help, I usually respond right away. There's something going on that I, I instantly respond. But God, as a perfect heavenly father, sometimes that struggle, he allows that struggle. Because it's doing something within us that he can produce something in our character, in who we are. But Jesus is teaching his early disciples, and he's teaching his disciples today, hey, you pray. In fact, this, uh, this story we're going to look at today, I want you to just look at this very first verse that says this. This is in Luke chapter 18, and uh, I'll get to something else in a second. Luke chapter 18, here's what it says. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. They should always pray and what? Not give up. So Jesus is getting ready to tell you and tell me a story so that we would always pray and not give up. Now, some scholars believe that Luke 18 and Luke 11 were actually probably, as Jesus is a traveling preacher, probably spoke these parables or spoke these teachings, maybe back to back, that simultaneously. Now, Luke has kind of put the gospel together by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and said, okay, here's the best way, because why was Luke writing this? Well, he was writing this to give a defense of why we could believe Jesus is who he says he is. And here's an account of who he is. He writes the gospel of Luke, and he writes the book of Acts, speaking about the early church. And he says, this is why you can put credence, this is why you can have hope that Jesus really is who he says he is, that these things really happened, and that you can understand he's writing the defense so that people in the early times could say, this really happened. Now, He's arranged that Luke 18 and Luke 11 are separated by a few chapters. You can, you can figure that it's like seven. Okay, so, uh, but Luke 11 and Luke 18, Jesus might have, um, some scholars believe, taught together. Now, you can go back and read Luke 11, and it'll make more sense. That's when Jesus is teaching about the Lord's Prayer. The disciples have come and teach us to pray. He, he teaches them, walks through the prayer, and then he tells a couple parables after that. I'll go back to that in a second. But here in Luke 18, Jesus says... I'm going to tell you this story so that you will always pray and you will not give up. So does Jesus understand what he's going to say next? Okay. Do you understand what he's getting ready to say? Always pray, never give up. Now, I'm going to read this a little bit, and then I I think I'm going to draw something to really help you understand, um, and that'll be fun. So here's what Jesus says, verse 2. He says, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in this town who had an adversary coming after him and came to him with a plea. Grant me justice against my adversary. So here we have two characters in this story. Now, I really think this is going to help you. So just a second. I took some art classes. And uh, I'm really hopeful that this will cement it in your mind and will help you. I was going to draw on the screen, but I thought, eh, no, let's go old school. Um, so, we have two characters in this story, okay? So, I'm going to separate the paper here. We have two characters. That is an amazing line, isn't it? Awesome. Uh, these, please don't encourage me. Um, so, 
Now, we have a widow, okay? So, widow up here. Hey, that guy could spell. That's awesome. Okay, so we have a widow, and we have a judge, okay? So, the judge is the other character. This is not Judge Judy. There's a different judge, okay? He's male. That's because that's what the story's telling us. So, we have this widow. Now, to help you really understand this widow, let's... <laughs> Arms, big nose, and, okay, that's not a mustache. Um, that's really, well, it's more of a smirk, because she's not happy in this story, okay? This is just, it's pretty bad, isn't it? So, and we have a judge over here, and we've got, we'll give him glasses, just because cool people wear glasses. And a short neck, and a judge's robe. And he's got arms, and he's got a gavel, because that's what judges have, okay? Wow, that is quite... He's a smirk, too. Um, whew, okay. Kindergarten class paying off. Here we go. So, we have these two characters, right? Now, a widow, in our context, in our understanding of a widow, uh, doesn't really help you understand from a first century understanding that the, the, the first hearers of the story would have understood. Uh, we, we don't see it, because a widow to us, in a lot of ways, uh, never has a mustache. Um, but a widow to us, uh, they can be a CEO of a company. They could be really well off. They could be a person who... Um, had a bunch of, of the estate kind of come to, to, to be and in motion for her, and so she would maybe be quite well off. Uh, we know people who are widowed, who have their own job, who have clout, have people around them, but you have to understand in a first century world, when Jesus would have said there was a widow, instantly, everybody would have known, okay, if you are a widow, it's because not only did you lose your spouse, but you don't have family that's probably caring for you. So you are powerless, you are penniless, and you are disconnected. You do not have a voice very much in the culture in which this story was told. You are powerless, you are penniless, and you don't have a lot going for you. You don't have someone in your corner. Now, very different than the context of what we could see. Now, there's the judge uh, in this same story. And the judge, what's interesting about the judge is in a first century world, uh, the judge was set up to care for widows, orphans, and those who were disadvantaged. In fact, they were commanded. You can go back to Second Chronicles and read how Jehoshaphat was set up in the Senate, said this whole judicial system because the Israelites understood oppression, didn't they? They had grown up, they had kind of lived this whole 300 years under the oppression of the Egyptian people before they were brought out to be their own people and to be in their own land. And they had known not to have a voice, not to have clout. And they said very specifically in Second Chronicles to the judges, you will stick up for people who don't have a voice and who need it. And so here we have a widow, Jesus is teaching, and here we have a judge. Now, the characteristic that we have of the widow, we don't know a whole lot of what's going on. Here's what we know. There's an adversary. There's something going on in her life. Maybe it's part of her property that someone else is trying to seize, someone's trying to take from her. We don't know. But something's happening in her life that she needs a voice, something to be heard from. And we know something about this judge, don't we? We know this judge, Jesus says, doesn't give a rip about God and doesn't give a rip about other people. 
could care less about God and who could care less about other people. Now, from an understanding of the story, you would know instantly if you were one of the original hearers of the story. That's not how a judge should be. A judge was to live under the sovereignty of God, that God was sovereign and you were acting, you had so much power as a judge and you were trying to act on God's behalf on, for the people that you were given jurisdiction over and how you were trying to, to kind of supersede into their life and to help them and aid them and assist them in what was going on around. And so we have this judge who is the exact opposite of what it's set out to be. And we have this widow who, if the judge was the opposite, the true way, would have been heard. So this tension is building in this story as Jesus continues. He goes on. For some time, this judge, he refused listening to her. Remember, she said, come give me justice against my adversary. Now, for some time, he refused. Now, for some time means it's more than just one day. Okay, this is for some time. This has gone on day after day. When he gets out of the market, she's there. When, she, when he gets home, she's there. When he travels across the city to some other destination, she somehow has gotten there, and she's constantly calling for him to act on her behalf. So for some time, he refused. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see to it that she gets justice. How many of you are parents? Raise your hand real high. Do you remember this? Uh, maybe if you're aunt, uncle. Hey, 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 mommy. Mommy, 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 daddy, 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 do you remember this scene? Okay, and it's usually a toddler, um, and it's someone that you know, because uh, it's weird if it's a different toddler that you don't know, um, but it's a toddler you're connected to, and they're coming to you for something, candy, cookie, what we don't know, okay, but they're coming to you for something, and, and you have tried to resist the temptation. You have tried to squash this rebellion in this moment, and you have done everything, but for somehow they are just resilient, and they keep calling your name. Mommy, 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 daddy, 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 aunt, uncle, whatever, okay? You, you. And for some reason, at some point, you snap, right? And in a snapping, what you do is this. Fine. Just stop, right? Here's five cookies. Go play in your room. And because in your mind, what you have at the forefront of your attention in that moment is, is your interest. And you're solving this issue because it's about self-interest, right? I'm going to take care of myself because I'm tired of listening to this. And I've done everything I can to divert this, but it's not working. So, this judge says, even though I don't fear God, and I don't give a rip about what people think. Because this woman is just continually wearing me out with her attention and her judge, 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 judge. I will, his only interest in this moment is self-interest. And he gives her justice, right? And so Jesus is telling this story. Why? So that we would always pray and we would never give up. Now what's interesting 
is that somewhere in this story, maybe you, like those first century hearers, starts drawing your own conclusions to things. How many of you watch mystery, uh, like detective shows on TV or Netflix or so, and you try to figure out who done it by the end, and you're trying to guess by the middle of the show to figure out? And I wonder if people in the first century, and they're hearing this story, just like maybe even today, people are trying to figure it out. Okay, well, <clears throat> then maybe this is an allegory. Maybe, maybe I'm a lot like that widow. And I don't have a lot of value. I don't, I'm, I'm kind of powerless. I don't have a, a voice. And maybe, maybe God's like that judge. Maybe he's like this distant deity who's not dialed into me. And I just have to wear him down. And if I just ask enough times, and it's kind of like the genie in the bottle, then he'll eventually cave and give me what I need or need what, give me what I want. And so maybe you would begin to draw those conclusions. What's fascinating about Jesus' teaching mechanism here is that it's the exact opposite of that. In Judaism, an understanding of a, uh, a teaching strategy, so to speak, a teaching technique that Jesus used a few different times, this is one of the most prime examples, is called the light and the weighty. The light and the weighty. Jesus is telling this story, why? So that we would always pray, and we would never give up. Jesus tells a story about this penniless, powerless, voiceless widow. And about this judge who has all the power, but he doesn't care, and he's disconnected, and he, and he won't be there. Now, if you wear him down, if you beg enough, maybe out of his own self-interest, He'll answer and reply. And what Jesus does in this moment is he says, You are not at all like that widow. You're not at all like that widow. You are not penniless. You are not powerless. You're nothing like her. You are connected through Jesus, you're connected through His, through faith in Him to the Creator of all things. You have great value. Why? Because Jesus is saying, I've come that you might have life and you might have it to the full. I've come that you may have life with God and you are nothing like her. You have a voice. You have value. You have worth. And God is nothing like this judge. He's absolutely the furthest thing from this judge. It's so light and weighty. It's, you think it might be this, but it's so much this. That's what he's saying in this story. In fact, he goes on. He says, uh, eventually the judge so that she'll uh, won't attack me. Uh, verse uh, 8, and the Lord said, listen uh, to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are adopted. You are a friend of God. That's what we have through the grace of Jesus. I tell you that he will see that you get justice and quickly. That you will be answered. That you will find what you need. And it may not be what you want but it will be for your best. So Jesus is telling the story so that we would always pray 
and we would never lose hope. Here's the reality of the world in which we live in. It's broken. That's obvious. In the midst of a broken world, it's easy for a broken people to begin to lose hope. It's easy in the fractures of which we have to face relationally, fractures within our own self, our own character, brokenness of the things that we bring upon ourselves or that we have thrust upon us, and we have to understand and wade our way through. Sometimes it's easy to begin to think that God is like this judge, that he's distant and that he's this deity that's kind of, you got to try to get his attention. Isn't that what Elijah was saying to the prophets of Baal who were spent the whole entire day trying to get the, you can go back and read it. And um, he's saying they have been kind of trying to light this fire and have their God, uh, their deity, light this uh, altar on fire. And they were calling out and crying. And Elijah, he started yelling, right? He started almost taunting in a Christian way. Hey, um, why don't you yell louder? In fact, if you read the Hebrew, he's literally saying, hey, maybe your God's on the pot and he's busy. He's acapado. And so maybe you need to yell louder for him to hurry up so he can answer you. That's literally what he's saying. Maybe you need to cut yourselves. And so they would begin to cut themselves and try to live out this, this fervency in their petition to their deity. And yet Elijah kneels down. He says a simple two-sentence prayer. Because Elijah understood this. This is why I can pray and I can never lose hope. I don't have to ever give up because I am nothing like this widow. And my God is nothing like this judge. He is so far opposite of this. I think that's why Henry Nowen can say that prayer is the central work of the Christian life, the only necessary thing. Maybe the bottom line, uh, what I put for tonight, is that prayer <clears throat> prayer is the central work of the Christian because prayer is the central help for the Christian. It's what we're called to. And that doesn't mean that I become a spiritual couch potato and I don't have any participation in what God has for me and what he's invited me to partner with and be a part of in his church or a part of what you have individually in front of you. It just means I can make prayer a rhythm of my life, that it's never drifting toward being a last resort, that I try in, in God's power to make it a top priority. And I can have it as a top priority because I'm nothing like this widow. God understands you. He understands the number of hairs on your head. For some of you, that's easier to count than others. But he knows. He's dialed in. He's not a distant or distracted deity. That's what Jesus came to put on display. That's why he could respond to his disciples individually, personally, relationally. God's like that. He's not at all like this judge who's only in for himself, only about his own self-interest. In fact, that's so far opposite of how the Bible describe, describes God and what he's really like and what his heart is for. His heart is for you, for me. And so prayer can be this incredible relational connection that I have with God. Does that mean that God's going to answer in an audible voice? I've never had that. And maybe someday... 
But I've had moments, and you've had moments, where you just know that God's dialed in and His attention is in your direction. And He's, he's giving you wisdom to make the right decisions. He's showing you things in His Word to say, here's how you're going to live. Here's how to, your, uh, how to move forward. He is bringing people around you who are, who are being champions on His behalf with skin on, real close to you, that you can feel and sense and see. Why? Because God loves you. And He loves me. And He wants prayer to be a rhythm of our life. Not as ever as a last resort, but as this top priority. That more and more as the years go by, more and more as the seasons unfold, that prayer just becomes this thing that I do. It's a thing that I live out. Now, does that mean I need to have a 30-minute prayer time every day? No. It means that you need to work on being connected. Now, for some of you, that may be that. For others, it may be less than that. It may be different. It's going to look different in different seasons of life. I believe that. And I think for you, the next step is to say, how do I make prayer kind of the central work? Because prayer is the central help. And so how do I keep that in the forefront of my mind? And that I don't ever let myself drift back here. That I'm, I'm penniless, I'm powerless, I don't have a connection. And that God's distant from me. What Jesus is saying is that you and I are invited to pray. And that we don't ever have to lose hope because our God is dialed into us, aware and attentive, and wants to connect. And so tonight, I wanted to end our sermon time. We're going to worship in the Lord's Supper and another song here in a moment. But I wanted to just create some space, give you a moment for us to practice this, for us to pray. And I wanted to do on three things. So I'm going to give you some time. If it helps you to close your eyes, if it helps you, you can put your Bibles down, whatever it may be, to help you uh, feel like you can connect. It's going to be quiet, and that's okay. Um, we're just going to take a few moments here of just saying, hey, God, I want to, to really dial into this. I want to practice this more, and I want this to become more a rhythm of your life. And so maybe it's as simple as this tonight. Maybe it's as simple as saying, God, I really want prayer to become more and more a rhythm of my life. And maybe that's your prayer that you need to have right now. You don't need to beat yourself up. None of us pray as much as we think we should, including me. I think what we need in this moment is to realize that prayer is a love language for God and from God. It's for Him that we get to connect with Him, and it's also from Him that He's given us this privilege, this opportunity, this advantage, that we get to actually connect and communicate with Him. And so maybe you just take a moment and just pray for yourself. How's your prayer life? Let me just ask that. How's your prayer life? And you take a moment and just ask God to meet you in what your next step in that might be. So let's take a minute and do that. How's your prayer life? And talk with Him about that.
You know, the Bible tells us sometimes to be still and to know that He is God. But prayer doesn't have to be a still thing. It doesn't have to be a silent thing. You can pray in the car as you drive. You can pray as you walk down the hall. You can pray as you're going around the corridor at your office complex or in school, in the, on the way to meetings, in the middle of meetings that you're bored in. You can pray at any point. And maybe the other invitation I give you tonight to, to take a second to pray for is just <clears throat> maybe there's one particular person. You know, uh, Apostle Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer. So much in the, the epistles, we're told to pray and intercede for others. And so I'm just curious if tonight there's someone that God's put on your heart that you're like, you know, I, I just want to, I want to pray for them because their, their name is on my mind, their, their story, what's unfolding in their life, I just know is a, is a struggle, is a tension, is a difficult thing they've got to wade through. And as a church, we want to become a, a, a people that's, that champion others in prayer. And so why don't you take 20 seconds and just you think of that one person that maybe God's bringing to mind, someone that's on your heart, and just pray for them for 20 seconds. And finally, um, I would love just to lead us in a prayer. You know, as a church, we want to be a community of people who are gathered in the, in the love of Christ and trying to live that out out loud on display for people to see and bump into and be changed by. And we want to be a church that prays. And so I'm going to invite you in the next 20 seconds just to pray with me. Uh, I'm going to be silent for a couple of seconds, and I'm going to launch into a prayer. You can pray along with me. You can fill in your own words of praying for our community, uh, uh, the five-mile radius around our church, as well as our city, praying for God to revitalize and to bring his hope and his grace on further display for people to see. Maybe it's different individuals that you know of. Uh, and so let's just, as a church, take a second and, and pray on behalf of our city, on behalf of, of God working here in and through our church as well as every other church that has fallen after Christ. And so let's pray for that on that end, and then I'll close this. Father, I thank you that you've given us the gift of prayer. It's this invitation to pray. It's this tool that we can have. It's an instrument that we can, can play and be a part of. It's the story that we've been invited into to connect with you. And Father, I pray for Element City Church, for us as a group of people. God, we're, we're people. We're, we're a movement of, of the heart and grace and love and truth of Jesus. That's what we're about. And we want to see more and more people embraced by that, encounter that, and to be changed by that. So I continue to pray for our neighborhood, just the five to ten mile radius of right around this church. God, so many needs. So many people that are battling brokenness or battling uh, setbacks in life. So many folks 
that uh, maybe don't even have you on their radar screen. I pray for an awakening within their spirit that they would see and sense you around them. That your Holy Spirit would be sent out to, to put a call upon their life that they, can, they could come home with you. That they can find life with God through Christ. So Father, I pray that you'd help us to be a church that shines a bright light in the way that we serve our community, the way we serve the, the people, the administration here at Catalina, the way we serve uh, the families that are part of John B. Wright, the way we serve those that we get to encounter as we rub shoulders and work alongside them in the workplace and in the school. Father, would you help us to be light wherever we go, not to promote Element City Church, but to champion the hope of Jesus. God, thanks for prayer. So easy for it to slip to be a last resort. Would you help it to become more and more the rhythm, more and more a habit, more and more a part of how we live, and it's a first priority. And we pray for our loved ones, our family. We pray for protection, but God, we pray bigger prayers than that. God, we pray that you would wreck our city with the hope and the healing of Jesus. We need it here. God, we need your grace. We need you. We need your presence here. So, Jesus, we love you. We thank you for teaching us about prayer. So much more for us to learn. But I thank you that you told us that we could always pray and we can never give up. We don't ever have to lose hope. You remind us again as we observe the Lord's Supper, as we take that in a moment, as we worship you in song. Father, would you continue to stir our hearts as we remember your body broken, your blood given and shed behalf of the forgiveness of our sins that we might have life with you. Thank you for that. Father, as we sing and worship you, I pray that we would sing with all that we have and it would be a, a song of prayer to you. That your authority and your hope would rise in this place for many, many, many to see. God, there's a million people in this, in this city that need to know the hope of Jesus. So we pray, one by one by one, you'd go after and pursue them. And you'd allow us to be a partner with you in doing so. We thank you for that. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.